0: Welcome to Three-Way Moviegasm with Sasha Stone and Ryan Adams from AwardsDaily.com and Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com.
1: something what i've done has not worked out too well i think maybe we better think of something
2: else for you huh <sighs> right now i guess ruth crawford has got about as good a setup as ruth anyone well oh, sure oh, i think sonny's reasonably good looking sonny Crawford?
1: Yes, oh don't you know about that well it's been going on about six months now i thought you kids knew oh, everything it's the silliest thing i ever heard of she's 40 years old oh so am i honey it's kind of an itchy age
0: Welcome to Oscar year 1971. I was just going to say the thing that stands out for me about this year, just glancing over it, is is that Clockwork Orange and uh, Last Picture Show and The French Connection were all three nominated. Those are some, you know, great, weird, daring films to be nominated for Best Picture. And I was wondering if um, they were talking a little bit about Ken Russell. Do you guys know anything about Ken Russell's work? Um,
1: I have you know, seen a lot of his movies. I don't really know anything about the guy, but
2: do you know lot, he his movies? He's so crazy. He's just so his movies are so insane. You know, They're I was really shocked when I first saw him. I think I saw a bunch of them in a, like a week long uh, film festival, like uh, in college. You know, when they would show a different film with his every night, and that was a trip. You know, to, to be exposed to that all that for the first time, yeah. right after another.
0: I was just thinking he was he was reminding me a little of Darren Aronofsky.
2: You know. Uh,
0: Looking yeah, back, and maybe
2: on... not. that Darren, Darren Aronofsky never goes that far because that's—I mean, Ken Russell was really way over the top, I think. But I see what yeah, you mean, I'm... though, as far as being the the, the obsession with the, the really um, uh, wild stylistic sets and and uh, even wild point of view. You know, his, his ideas on religion and everything were really radical for the time. Though, hmm. Ken Russell would never make fucking Wolverine two. <laughs> Some of Ken Russell's movies are so out there that they. I uh, think one of them, The Devils, is not even on DVD. Warner Brothers has restored it. I think they showed it at a screening in New York, maybe at uh, the Forum or something. And they, but they're not, they're not going to release it on DVD because it's still too radical. I mean, they showed the Christian stuff in it and everything, the, the anti-religious stuff, and the, there's like a rape of Christ and all this kind of stuff in it, mm. and then, like some really strange stuff. Um, the, the priests and nuns and everything are. I don't know. I I think that I saw part of it once because some of the things I've heard about it sound familiar, but it's just a, almost nightmarish, like dream life or memories of it. You know, strange. Mm. Stuff. But you know, didn't he? Have, when did he do Women in Love? That was a fairly relatively normal. That movie. was nineteen
0: seventy one, and That's in fact,
2: thinking. yeah, Women in Love. So that was before he went really too far over the top, and that was a pretty high quality movie because it was a literary adaptation, right? Hmm.
1: I show that as sixty nine.
0: Oh dear. Well, I got something. well, let me read you this this paragraph from Damien Bona's book. It says, Hollywood Rebels took over the 1971 Academy Awards. As soon as Glenda Jackson won Best Actress from the New York Film Critics for Ken Russell's Women in Love, United Artists released Ken Russell's biography of Tcha- Tchaikovsky,
2: <laughs>
0: Tchaikovsky that starred Glenda Jackson as the composer's insane wife, the music lovers. Rex Reed raved. It's... It's too bad Glenda won her award before people got a chance to see The Music Lovers because up to this shattering film, everything has been an audition. And then it says, After The Music Lovers, Jackson balked when Russell asked her to play a sexually obsessed, back 17th century nun in The Devils. Please, Ken, don't ask me to go crazy and start tearing off my clothes again, she pleaded. <laughs> Miffed, Russell offered the role to Vanessa Redgrave, who was being considered by director John Schlesinger um, and film critic turned screenwriter Penelope Gilliatt for their movie About a Love Triangle Vanessa decided to work with Russell while Schlesinger and Gilliatt offered their movie to Glenda Jackson Ken Russell's The Devils opened in the summer and was damned even by the critics who admired it Um, so I guess that's just setting up the stage for I guess a fight between Vanessa Redgrave and Glenda Jackson for Best Actress right?
2: Um, was that in seventy seventy? Or 70? It says
0: seventy one in the book, but maybe the movie. Uh, some was... of these movies, I
2: think, but the confusion is maybe the the release dates in the UK and and the US were different. Um, yeah, yeah Women in Love was
1: re- released in the UK in nineteen sixty nine, came out in the US in March of nineteen seventy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So and the... then, um, and then the Devils came out in nineteen
0: seventy one. Oh, okay, the Devils, right?
1: And was roundly ignored by the Academy.
0: Okay, so Glenda Jackson was nominated for Sunday Bloody Sunday, Vanessa mm-hmm. Redgrave for Mary Queen of Scots, and then uh, Julie Christie for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But Jane Fonda won for Clute. Mm-hmm. So
2: and she had lost a year before for uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? So she was maybe a little bit due. Jane Fonda was a little bit considered due because she had lost the year before. Mm-hmm. I think um, I mentioned Sunday Bloody Sunday last week, when we were talking about. John Schlesinger and The Cowboy, and the fact that he was gay and probably pr- fairly openly gay, considering that the movie he made this following year was had a gay, gay subject. You know, um, Glenda Jackson and Peter Finch both share the same young lover. They're, I think Peter Finch was in his 40s and Glenda Jackson was maybe mid-30s, and they're both having – Two different affairs with this young guy who's an artist in his in his early twenties, and it's a pretty daring movie for its time, you know. Um, because for one thing, it was totally it was totally unashamed, and un, uninhibited, and un, unworried attitude that Peter Finch and the guy had about their homosexuality. I mean, there was no big deal made of it at all. It was just like another another affair. Mm. The, the the really unusual thing about it was the fact that the guy, the younger guy, had seemingly little care for either one of the of the older people he was having an affair with. He was really a, kind of a selfish prick, you know. Mm. And the movie focused on Glenda Jackson and Peter Finch. But they were both both those Peter Finch and J- Glenda Jackson were both nominated for an Oscar for that movie.
0: Oh interesting.
2: And uh Peter Finch wasn't the
1: original choice for the role. The original guy got fired. Um his Who name was, was, it? was Ian his name was Ian Bannon and he freaked out mm-hmm. um, about having to do the man man on man kissing. He was afraid <laughs> that he was going to um Impact his career, and so um, they basically canned him, and uh, they brought in um, Peter Finch. Yeah, actually, Alan Bates was supposed to be was supposed to be the guy, but he had other commitments, and then Ian Bannon was going to do it, got fired, and then Peter Finch was brought in.
2: Hmm. Yep. And he did an awesome
1: be- job. Like like Ryan said, it's not. Um, it's remarkable, especially for the time, because it was just a matter of fact in his handling of the sexuality. It just it, it wasn't it wasn't made into an issue. It just was, you know.
2: Mm. There was there was a, there was nudity. I mean, there were show uh, rear rear shots of like asses and stuff like that. There wasn't a lot of really hardcore st- stuff going on, um, but it was balanced between what they showed him doing with with Glenda Jackson and what they showed him doing with Peter Finch. A lot of you know nakedness in bed and on top of each other and rolling around and stuff like that and, like, uh, just really open, like, but uh, you said, Penelope, I, how do you pronounce her name, Penelope Gilliatt or And yeah. She was a film critic for The New Yorker at the same time that Pauline Kale was a film critic. They, the same way that Anthony Lane and David Denby trade up uh, half a year now, they switch back and forth, uh, Denby and, and, and Lane for The New Yorker, take mm-hmm. half a year of the movies. Uh, back then, I think Kale and Penelope Gilliatt were the co-critics for The New Yorker. And that was her, Penelope Joliet's single solitary screenplay. And she yeah. won, She was nominated for an Oscar for that.
0: It's interesting how in 1971 there was this kind of seamless leap from being a film critic to being a filmmaker. Um, the one film critic I can think of now who, who is a filmmaker is uh, Rod Lurie. You know, he started out as a critic and then he became a director. But it's uh, not really the norm, is it?
2: Not really. And didn't um, – didn't, and Kale herself take some time off to work with was it Robert Altman? Didn't she didn't she collaborate with Robert Altman? I don't think she has any screen credit or anything, but she hung out to to learn about the inner in workings of the movies. That she hung out with him a lot on the sets and everything. Hmm. Maybe around the time of Nashville, I believe, some when this happened. we were saying that uh, not only did they nominate the Last Picture Show and the French Connection, and A Clockwork Orange that year, but also on the Roof, which Craig says is a better-than-average musical for, mm. for what it was. And also Nicholas and Alexandra, which was a big uh, historical epic, um, may ha- maybe have some relevance to this year because it is a movie about royalty, you know, which has always been popular at the Oscars. And um, it was directed by Franklin Schaffner, Schaffner, who the year before had done Patton, right? So he was still riding high on, on that success and his Oscars from that produced by sam spiegel who produced all of david lean's movies so it was just top-notch quality production hmm. um, Didn't i think um, both the actor and actress who played nicholas and alexander were nominated for oscars right um,
1: the actress was the actor wasn't just just janice susman yeah,
2: yeah and uh they were both excellent i mean it's just a very it's not dr Zhivago, but it it's it, it to look at to look at it and to to just enjoy it for its epicness, you know. I think it's it's enjoyable on the same level as Chivago.
1: Yeah, I think for the for the kind of film that it is, I think it's fine. It's um it's not especially deep, but it was it w- was honest and well made and and epic and and historic and, you know, and great costumes and production design. I just I just think that a lot of times that kind of movie and that historically has gotten favored over. Um, edgier, more interesting movies. And yeah. that, that seems to be the one that just kind of stands out as being, to me, a little bit of a clunker. Not that it's a bad movie. It's just the kind of movie that, that it is doesn't really hold up to time as being the, all that interesting to me.
2: Hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, compared to the other um, three, especially that are that are masterpieces, classics, it's one of these things that's not like the other sort of situation. It definitely doesn't, it's not up to the same standards. But overall, I think it was a pretty respectable Year. And, you know, we see that every year with the Oscars. There are always the about one-fifth of the Academy is always looking back about 10 or 15 years to the way things used to be and looking for a movie that, that it, they're nostalgic for. And Nicholas and Alexander and – Alexandra. When I keep saying Nicholas and Alexander as if they're, as if they're the, gay, the gay couple, the gay, <laughs> <laughs> gay monarchs of Russia. You're, you're still, still sucking
1: Sunday, bloody Sunday.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Alexander. Um, shit. Um, and Fitter on the Roof, too. I mean, again, it was no um, West Side Story, but it, uh, it, it harked back to people still were. And, you know, Fitter on the Roof was the number one box office movie of the year in 1960. Yeah. And it's
1: widely regarded by people who love musicals as one of the one of the greatest.
2: I can't talk about it. I've sure. never seen it, but, but I, I, I'm, I assume it must be pretty good.
1: Hmm. My mom was a huge fan she's my Oscar litmus test, as you well know. <laughs> but
0: can I ask you this? What would your mom have thought of uh, Clockwork Orange and um, The Last Picture Show and French Connection? Do you think she'd like those three? Because to me, I think those are maybe three of the best uh, Best Picture nominees in Academy history all in one year. You know, but I, know I don't that...
1: remember what she thought of Last Picture Show. I distinctly remember her and everybody else loving French Connection. Hmm. Um, I doubt that she saw... A Clockwork Orange at the time, it's possible, but um, she would have been
2: she would have found it repellent <laughs> for sure. <laughs> the French connection must have been sort of like the departed of, of of its time, you know. I yeah, I was just thinking like that,
0: that, Ryan, that's so funny. I was just thinking that because I was thinking it must have been huge box office. I mean, other than the fact that it was Scorsese directing and he was overdue and everything, but um you know that that it was it was an action movie it was a, it was probably eaten up by the public but it was also very critically acclaimed and entertaining and um it says here in the book Inside Oscar by Damian Bona and Mason Wiley that Gene Hackman said after he knew when he did that movie that he he didn't like violence <laughs> it, it, doing it actually showed mm-hmm. him how how little he liked to be a violent person and how you know nonviolent he really was
2: it was the third highest uh, grossing movie of the year. Just as far as you were talking about, it, as far as popularity, um, a movie. That, the second highest grossing movie that year was Billy Jack. I've heard of it, and I think they did re- did a remake of that, but I've never seen it. I can't imagine what what that what it how that could have been so popular unless it's something like maybe the Expendables of nineteen sixty nine or something nineteen seventy. I don't know anything about that movie. Billy Jack like- really
1: really caught a cultural wave at the time. It was like. Um- it was just one of those movies that just caught the public's fancy, and and it wasn't very good, but everybody loved it. Kind of movie.
0: I know, but do we think it was wasn't very good? Have we? Has anybody watched it recently? Because I, I I've think-
1: seen it in the last few years, and I think it's it's pretty corny. It's kind of a drive-in movie, which has its charms, but. It, oh. it's...
2: Um, was, I, yeah. I agree with you about uh, the last picture show. One of my favorite movies of all time. I really, I, I, I've seen it so many times. And it, the the look of it, the style, and you know when you look at that cast and then think about what they went on to do. That was Jeff Bridges. I think it was Jeff Bridges' second movie, second feature film. He had done some television, you know, before with his with his dad on Sea Hunt or whatever that show was. Maybe I don't know what television he did, but I think that was Jeff Bridges' second feature film, and he's nominated for an Oscar for that. And I mean, how many people were nominated for an Oscar for that movie? Like half a dozen or something, right? The act, as far as actors go. Hmm. Uh, ben yes, Johnson all, all and the all and the Chorus supporting one.
1: It got uh, Ben Johnson, Cloris Leachman, Jeff Bridges, and Ellen Burstyn were all nominated in supporting roles. Uh-huh. But there, there really was no lead in that film, was there? They were all kind of supporting roles. It was more of an ensemble.
2: Right. John. So he already cast the, the teenagers. He'd already cast the high school people. He asked Bob Rafelson if he had any suggestions for for the actresses and uh, for, an, for the older – because he had three older ladies. He had the, the waitress. He had the mother, Jaycee's mother, and then he had, yeah. um, of course, Leachman's role, the, the, the wife of the coach, and – he, chill, he, chill, he interviewed everybody that Ravelson recommended, and, of course, Leachman, uh, yeah, of course, Leachman came in, and she said, you know, I know you're having me read for The Waitress, but I'm really more interested in playing J.C.'s mom. And Bob Gummett said, you know, take the script home, read all three female parts, Female parts. come back tomorrow, tell me which one you want, and you can have any one you want. He like, I want you in this movie. You, you decide what role you want.
0: Oh, interesting. Wow, really? Cool, isn't it? <laughs> I, um, when I was at NY or actually at Columbia before I dropped out and ruined my life, I, um, we had Andrew Saris came to lecture. I had had a, I got a scholarship to go there and one of my job to fulfill that scholarship was to be the projectionist and, um, one of the projectionists, it was so great. Can I just say, but we did the last picture show and Andrew Sarris came to talk about it, introduce it. And he, he told a really funny story about, you know, Peter Bogdanovich basically left Polly Platt and hooked up with, uh, Candace Morgan. No. No. Uh,
2: yeah. Civil shepherd, civil
0: shepherd, gorgeous (laughs) civil shepherd. And apparently there was some funny, uh, incident that happened because civil shepherd has to do that nude scene, you know, where she gets into the pool the first time. Um, Um, you know, she's, she's sort of, she's kind of this repressed country girl who's kind of discovering her own Sexuality as the movie goes on, right? Because she has this weird sort of relationship with. Um, is it Jeff Bridges that they don't have she, sex, but they pretend they have sex, or is it somebody else? Can... It is Jeff
2: Bridges, I think. And Jeff Bridges. She, has, he, she, she plays with all the guys in that movie she, because she has such a, a hypnotic power over all of them and she knows yeah. it, but she doesn't really know how to use that power yet.
0: She doesn't know how to use it and she's learning. Well, yeah. apparently, Peter Bogdanovich, nice guy that he is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> made a big fuss because she had inverted nipples, oh. and um, he didn't want her to nude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear Craig laughing. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want her to <laughs> to do the nude scene because because of that. So they had to figure out a way to make them not inverted. I just thought it was funny that Andrew Saras was telling this story to you know these twenty something year old <laughs> film majors <laughs> at Columbia. <laughs> So, anytime I think of last picture show, I can't forget about her inverted nipples. Even though <laughs> <laughs> the Venus de Milo also had inverted nipples, we, we should say. So,
2: um, this is news to me. I never heard that story before. I think they only show. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested to know what method they used to to uninvert them. Well, it's not
0: of, that hard, honey. Kind of <laughs> <You> just. <laughs>
2: I think they do the, the, the nudity that that they show of her. She showed they show her diving off the diving board. I think in the, mm-hmm. at the nude swimming party. But I don't remember very many close-ups of her nude. But I do think I do I do know that I think that she demanded she didn't she was real ner- kind of self-conscious about the nude scenes. This was her first movie too, you know. She she didn't she wasn't sure about the nude scenes, and she said you have to promise me that there will be no still photographs ever released. In this movie, I don't want these showing up in magazine because she had a modeling career going on at that time. He saw her on the cover of Glamour magazine. That's where he discovered her from the cover of the magazine. And oh, she really? didn't want any nude shots of her, out. but of course they did get out. And there was one that appeared in Playboy. And she sued. And that they since then there's they I think she's responsible for the fact that there's a new there's a they made a Screen Actors Guild sort of a clause and that has to be in everybody's contract. It you have to be have to have express permission from the actor to show any. Nude stills from a movie hmm. like that
1: doesn't really play on the internet though because anytime there's even the slightest glimpse of any actress naked, it's instantly on the internet there forever.
0: <laughs> That's true.
2: <laughs> and it's, good That's for their, good it's good for their careers now too. It's not not considered such a bad thing anymore.
0: Well, was it considered a bad thing back then?
2: Um... I'm not. You know, I wonder about that because I think that I know for sure that when they were getting the financing for the movie together. They they looked at the at the novel Larry McMurtry, McMurtry who wrote uh, of course um, Lonesome Dove and a bunch of He's other great, Westerns. He's great,
0: yeah.
2: Um, they said, yeah, we like the story, but just make sure there's some nudity in it because they knew that one of the reasons that that the, all of the the European films were so popular in America it wasn't because everybody in America was so highbrow. It's just like Jack Nicholson said at the time. I think there's a quote from Jack Nicholson. He says, you know, it's not that the American audience were so highbrow. They wanted to flock to the art house theater to see these foreign films. It's the only way they could see some tits and some beaver shots. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the truth, you know, because American movies weren't doing that yet. But I think uh, The Last Picture Show may have been the first, the first movie, the first American movie I can ever think of where you see girls' pubic hair. <laughs> That's, that's not that I'm an expert on that, but I mean, it's the only one no, I, I can remember. It's,
0: it's so interesting because that movie really had probably the most, other than maybe Clockwork Orange, um, seems to have had the most impact moving forward. I mean, I know it's an ongoing theme in our podcast to talk about which was the most influential, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and Last Picture Show for sure was the most, wouldn't you say? I mean, it was just...
2: Really open things up. I think that that time, one thing we have neglected to talk about the last couple of weeks that I can't believe that we've skipped over because we usually are pretty big about talking about it on the website is about the the cultural influences that are happening in society at the time and how they influence movies and vice versa, how the how the society and movies play play off of each other. And there were so many things happening in the country at that time that we have not really that are obvious. I guess maybe it's so obvious that we have not mention them because we think it should be taken for granted. But, of course, there was Woodstock. There was uh, all the, the riots and student unrest about Vietnam, the um, the Kent State shootings. Yeah. You know? um, the riots all across Europe, not necessarily about Vietnam, but in 1968 and 69, the student riots about uh, um, equality and and. and and um, women's liberation and then there were the Stonewall, the stonewall riots in in new york 68 mm. i believe 68 so all that was opening up so yeah. big you know? and so movies had movies couldn't be couldn't keep having these Dorothy day rock hudson frothy little fantasies it wasn't reflecting society anymore people would go to the movies and they weren't seeing themselves on screen they weren't seeing the America on screen anymore. They were seeing some kind of Hollywood concoction, mm. and so that's one of the reasons why I think movies really had to change in order to be relevant.
1: I think the seventy-one nominees really reflect that. I mean, um, sure, it's an action picture, but The French Connection is really dark. I mean, the, the lead character—he's—he's he's not a hero. He's an antihero. He's—he's he's a racist and and kind of a jerk. Um, and then of course, Clockwork Orange is one of the bleakest movies ever made. And um, there's just this strong sense of melancholy and loss that pervades the last picture show. And Fiddler on the Roof, I don't remember as being exactly an upbeat toe-tapper either. It, was, it had a lot of sadness to it also, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely um, Oscar was on board with, with uh, the feeling of the times, which was definitely very dark.
2: I think people not only – I think maybe we talked about how the Kennedy assassination might have affected people's perception of Dr. Strangelove, but I think then it was such a shock, and it was almost a fearful sort of shock. But by the end of the 1960s, that fearful shock had turned into a sort of anger when you have the the Bobby Kennedy assassination and Martin Luther King and everything else that was going on, like I said, Kent State. I mean people started to be fed up with it and ready to – to lash out, and I think that that was really reflected in and in the, the screenplays that were being written and the directors who were who were being given projects at the time. You have got Bogdanovich and and Coppola and Scorsese and Kubrick and everybody at the you know just getting, you know Kubrick of course was a little bit older generation I guess, but still yeah. the violence aspect. I think that uh, Clockwork mm-hmm. Orange culminates in a way sort of everything that Kubrick had been doing. Um, the relationship between sex and violence that he started exploring in Volita and Strange Love um, really come together in Doctor you know, Clockwork Orange.
0: Yeah, for sure. And wasn't Watergate happening around now too, 1972, 1971? Mm-hmm,
2: definitely, yeah. And uh, Did you already say thing?
0: that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I hate I, 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 to I, go I, back and listen because I always hear that you say stuff and then I repeat, I ask you later. Did you? <laughs>
2: No, that's okay, but you know there was definitely a dissatisfaction i think with with the way that Nixon was handling, even if the Watergate hadn't broken yet hadn't quite broken, there was a lot of suspicion that he was a uh, he was a you know we we already knew he was a crook right everybody already knew he was a crook had to have
0: you know. I am not a crook,
2: <laughs> but um sorry, another thing too. Should I have and,
0: another uh, glass of wine and then
2: really like <laughs> hey just you know right out of the bottle. Tip it up.
0: Sorry, I'm, I'll cut that out.
2: Show us your tits. <laughs> One Sorry. more thing about uh, talking about the violence. You know, um, we talked about the wild bunch, um last week. Will you stop laughing while I'm talking? Sorry. <laughs>
1: Will you stop talking while she's laughing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay. So sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. Don't wow. be quiet.
2: <laughs> uh, we're talking about Peck and Paul last week in the Wild Bunch, and how he he introduced a new level of violence to the Western. And and this current year that we're talking about, 1971, he made Straw Dogs, which mm. I think a lot of people felt like he went over the top with the violence. It was more real to them because it was took place in the in current, present day. There was that, I think, a pretty graphic rape and the revenge aspect of Straw Dogs and the fact that it was um, – I don't know, maybe even the fact that it started some pretty respectable people that people realized that it just seemed to really in in your face to a lot of people. It's strange that it would have gotten such a bad rap considering how violent the Clockwork Orange was. Maybe the fact that, that Kubrick sort of did it – played it almost tongue-in-cheek or or, or, or played it for – the absurdity factor in a way sort of I'm not sure
1: hmm. Kubrick Kubrick's stuff was a little more antiseptic whereas I think Peckinpah's was a little bit more mm. personal mm. and there's there's a lot of controversy with that rape scene because it's definitely implied if not outright illustrated that Susan George is actually kind of enjoying it which oh, right. is a quick way to pretty much piss everybody off so I think that that yeah, pretty much that. closed the door on on audience and critical yeah. opinion on that film for a very yeah. long time. In fact, at Sasha least. mentioned uh, Rod Lurie earlier, the uh, critic turned filmmaker. He's actually remaking Straw Dogs, and I think um, he mentioned that scene specifically as one of the things he wanted to address in the remake. You know,
2: I haven't heard I of love any... that movie too. You know, the, so many movies from this year are just so incredible. I could just, you know, Kate Bosworth. Oh yeah, I see that at all?
0: And Alexander Skarsgard is is in it, and. James Marsden. I don't really like his cast. It's too young.
1: Well, Hoffman and George were pretty young at the time.
0: Yeah. That's
1: true. We're just old now.
0: (laughs) Maybe so. (laughs) Maybe so.
1: You were talking before about film nudity, and I was just thinking, you know, it seems like we've gone through a really long Puritan period. It's not like there was boobs a-poppin' in every movie that came down the pipeline back then, but then there's this long period where actresses simply wouldn't do it. And now I've noticed in the last couple of weeks what a big goddamn deal they're making over the nudity and love and other drugs. It's just mm-hmm. like that's all they talk about. It's, they talked about it on Saturday Night Live. They've talked about it in every interview. And people are just so incredibly fascinated that these two A-list actress, actors, mostly the actress, but um, show skin in this movie. And it's kind of it's weird. It's like we're back in 1950 again.
2: Hmm. They made a big deal about that with Kate Winslet too, didn't they? In The Reader, and. I mean, you saw foreskin and everything in the reader. I mean, whoa. really? Kind of, but isn't it more surprising when, when Kate Winslet doesn't get naked in a
1: movie? I will
0: have to go back and check that out.
2: No, I'm <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm just maybe I'm just imagining that. I have a tendency to just extrapolate these things and fill in the blanks. Don't see foreskin whole, too often. <laughs> I have a whole file of deleted scenes in my head that maybe don't even exist. I'm pretty sure they showed some foreskin in the movie, though. It's Ryan's cutting room floor, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that's another thing that we're, if we can get serious for a minute, and get back on track. We don't have to get serious, but back on track. That's another thing that happened in 1968 from 1930, you know, from 1930 to 68 the motion prediction, the motion picture production code, that old Hayes Code, was still in effect. For all those years when movies were expected to sort of self-censor themselves, there was a written, sort of secret written uh, set of rules that you would go by things that you didn't show and didn't talk about. You didn't talk about, you know, Barely even talked about um, abortion or anything like that. Remember, we said that they had trouble with Dr. Strangely even getting the word, uh, you sons of bitches. They had trouble with you sons of bitches approved. But then by the mid 60s, you've got, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's just um, profanity, you know, wall to wall. And how do you start telling people that approved? Pulitzer Prize-winning play is unfit for audiences to see, so they had to. They realized they had to change this outdated production code, and so the production code was totally thrown out in 1968, and that's when the current MPAA film rating system began. When they tried to rate movies according to age, you know, and so that that opened up a lot of possibilities for what they could show because they could restrict to finally, for the first time, be able to say who would who would be able to get in to see it.
1: That's interesting because um, in nineteen what was it nineteen seventy with Midnight Cowboy being the first X-rated movie to be to win an Oscar, mm-hmm. then French Connection was the first R-rated movie to win an Oscar, and it seems like the adult ratings back then weren't as big of a deal. And this sort of ties into what I was saying about the puri- puritanism yeah. of the current climate. I mean, now mm-hmm. people are freaking out over an NC seventeen on Blue Valentine and an, and an undeserved R rating for The King's Speech. And it seems like twenty. 20, 30 years ago, those ratings wouldn't have mattered. I mean, they're still silly ratings, but it, it wouldn't have had as it wouldn't have been as big of a deal as, as it is now.
2: They look silly to us now. Looking back, those movies don't seem as bad as a lot of things that we see all the time now. A Clockwork Orange, I believe, when it first came out, was rated X, wasn't it? Yeah. I think that after yeah. several months, Kubrick did pull it, and he changed very, just uh, took a few seconds out and changed some things to tone it down to an R rating because he started to feel strange about a lot of, I think, and a lot of it had to do with the violence, because there started to be copycat violent um, incidents happening across Europe. When people saw this movie, there were there were um, some rapes and murders and things happened, and where people were like, I think there was like a rape of a, of a Dutch girl who was on a camping trip, and they were they were. They, they, the gang people in the gang rape were singing singing in, in the rain while mm. they raped her, mm-hmm. and so there was so Kubrick and Burgess both started to feel really weird about this thing that they had unleashed, and they wanted to sort of rein it back in. Kubrick, in fact, withdrew the movie from from distribution. It showed this is incredible that it showed for sixty one weeks at the same theater in the UK. Clockwork Orange did it was so popular. It showed for sixty one weeks straight. And then Kubrick pulled it because he, there all these violent incidents started happening, and it wasn't allowed to be distributed in the in the UK until 1993, like almost 20 years.
0: Hmm.
2: But that's why – if I can just say one more thing, I know I'm talking a lot here, but maybe the fact that all this stuff opened up in 1969, 70, 71 – And it opened up so big and so wild and so crazy all of a sudden maybe there was a backlash, a little bit of a backlash, because people thought that maybe, okay, maybe we have gone a little bit too far. And maybe these things do happen in cycles where there's an openness, and then you go a little bit too far, and and there's a – because you don't really get people complaining about nudity and violence until you start showing them what they consider to be too much of it. Yeah.
0: Well, things changed um, after the 70s. You know, Charles Manson and all that, I mean, it really sort of uh, shifted the culture. And and it seems like things shifted radically by the 80s, you know, coming out of the 70s because we we had Reagan in office and yuppieism and materialism. Plus we had Oprah. And Mm -hmm. along with Oprah came the whole child abuse thing and child sexual abuse. And suddenly there was, you know, that was the big, topic and there was you know the mcmartin preschoolers and there was all this hysteria about child abuse and sex and i feel like a lot of the puritanism that we're seeing today is kind of born out of that and it's funny because at the same time child porn on the internet is at an all-time high you know trading naked pictures of, of children and it's just interesting to me that that you know the that they tightened the grip, but it didn't seem to do much, you know, it still goes on, but it definitely changed the way we look at media. You know, it definitely turned our country into, I'm not saying specifically that, but mm. maybe it combined forces of, of, you know, conservative presidency and this kind of self-help stuff that was going on at the time sort of made this perfect storm of what we see now, which is, you know a puritanical society that is trying to um protect children, but in so doing we're we're highlighting violence and we're shaming anybody that has you know films that are about sexuality you know and that certainly was not the case in the seventies, as you can see by the movies that were honored in
2: nineteen seventy one right I think that you're right about that that they paint they they paint now sexuality with the same broad brush, any kind of sex is. Is is bad, <laughs> just because it, 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 even like you said, it, loving, uh caring sex that that they that they showed in Blue in, uh, Valentine, right? You, you can't kind right. of sex that you would think would be almost instructive and and encouraging for for people to see, not just young people but even adults to see to see that represented on screen because it so rarely is.
0: Yeah, and then the movies that are rated R are movies where you see women. Uh, I just watched. Um, the get, the getaway—is that what it's called? Um, Steve McQueen. No, it's not that. Maybe it's not called that. Um, oh, uh,
2: yeah, perfect getaway.
0: Perfect getaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and that is an incredibly violent movie. You mm-hmm. know, guys, half of his skull is falling off, and you know, this this person gets something stabbed into their hand, and it's just funny to me that that would be rated R. Mm-hmm. or any kind of violence against women. It's just like Ryan Gosling said, you know, that, that violence against women is, seems to be okay, but sex with women is not, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so. and, and, and even
1: language. I mean, getting back to the King's speech where they say, I think they say the word fuck like four times in a row and a couple of other words, and that's enough right there just to get it in our rating when – It's one of the mildest Mm. movies of the entire year, and it's unfortunate because it's actually a really good movie for kids to see. It's a little dry and slow, but the message (laughs) behind it about um, the whole story is good for kids.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I would never hesitate to show that movie to Emma just because it had the word fuck in it. I mean, Can you imagine being that kind of a parent?
2: (laughs) No, I can't. (laughs) This discussion has been going on, I guess, for decades because back in 1970, apparently there were imitators of, of Clockwork Orange who thought that Alex and the and the Druids were really pretty cool. They were they dressed up in the white coveralls and mm-hmm. for, you know marauding down the streets of London and everything. This was really happening. There were some people who were into 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 that. Anthony Burgess was getting so tired of defending his book and the movie that he said, you know, not everybody who murders their uncle can blame Hamlet. And if you want to talk about violent literature, he said there's no more violent and vindictive and vengeful uh, Violent book than the Bible.
0: Oh yeah, it's so true. But it doesn't say fuck in it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> doesn't say fuck. <laughs> they just do it. They don't talk about
0: it. <laughs> they do. Oh, poor Mary. Lots, lots yeah. of
1: begetting
2: going on in the Bible. <laughs> the thing about the Bible too is you do have there's a, there's a, there's always the retribution factor, and that's one thing that people do like didn't did like to see and, and almost were were required to show in movies up until the mid 60s. They were required to show that people had to pay a price for their for their naughty behavior. Mm. And that's well, that's one, one really.
1: of the things that makes Clockwork Orange so controversial is because it's turning that idea on its head and saying that there's a point at which. Retribution, in and of itself is wrong and mm-hmm. that you know, you, have to, you have to allow humans to be humans at a certain point even if they're the most terrible people on the planet yeah, which was absolutely. not a message that people necessarily wanted to hear
2: and in a way even in, in an indictment of the government and, and for, for, for having the audacity to go into somebody's head and fuck with their head to try to make them a, a different person than, than their nature than they were born with
1: Right.
2: I mean, Uh, which is worse? Which is the worst kind of intrusive uh, rape? You know, to to mess to rape somebody's brain like that, or or what Alec did?
0: Yeah, there's a certain element though of the young male who identifies with those guys because I remember in our Halloween parties in high school they would all show up that way, in those costumes, and, um, I think in the film. I think there's a reason why Stanley Kubrick kind of has the reputation for being um, not so nice to his female characters or some people have accused him of being a misogynist outright. Mm-hmm. I don't really see that because uh, I don't really look at his movies like that. His movies to me are, are satires of human nature all the way around. You know, men, women, nobody really gets spared um, in his right. movies, I don't think. But I know he's been given that label of... Uh, you know, misogynist. Maybe because of a Clockwork Orange, but I don't know. I mean, it, it maybe it brings up an interesting debate about PCism and how it how it affects artists and filmmakers. You know, I know we're seeing a lot of that this year uh, with Roman Polanski, and you know, thinking that you know because he did all these horrible things that that he can't make good movies, and or uh, The Social Network, if your film is you know not kind to women does that make your film not a good film even though the characters are imperfect um boys who maybe don't respect women and you're not really allowed to show that because you're not pleasing all groups at once you know
2: well i think it was peck and paul that we, we I quoted last week who said that i'm not i'm not a misogynist i'm not, i'm only depicting the, the misogyny that i observe in society mm. And it's interesting you bring up Polanski and talking about, and and you mentioned just in passing the Manson incident. And I I looked that up real quick. That was August 1969, so that was right on the cusp when all this was happening too. And I think about the home invasion and and the horrible thing that happened there with uh, Sharon Tate, and how that is similar to the home invasion in Clockwork Orange, that was made just that was probably filming at the same time. Maybe the script was being written at exactly the same time. And I know too for. That Burgess, Burgess, Anthony Burgess' wife, was was mugged and lost a, a child that she was carrying, before Burgess wrote *A Clarkwork Orange*. That he, he partly based that on an incident in his own life, so he knows from where he speaks, you know. Wow. So the, this stuff was really on people's minds, and just think how that would – think even think how the how the uh, the murder of this publicist has has rippled through through. Um, Hollywood this season. Think how the Sharon Tate martyrs must have affected Hollywood in 1969. Because yeah. wasn't that like in Benedict, Benedict Canyon or something? I mean, didn't everybody at one time or another live in Benedict Canyon? You know, that's like anybody on their way up or their way down lived in Benedict Canyon, right? Everybody knew that house. I think that everybody had at one time or another probably been invited to parties there, or maybe thought about leasing houses around the neighborhood. So it must have been a feeling like we just it could be it could be any of us.
0: Yeah. Well, it definitely poured cold water all over the sexual revolution. That's the one thing it really did do. And the whole free love thing. I mean, it all, although the 70s was all about free love, wasn't it? I mean, it really did kind well, of. Well, it's because
2: it was a disco era, you know? It was a disco era. And also, you have to think about, too, I, you don't have to think about, but I enjoy thinking about the drugs that, the drug situation that were available. You know, I think before in the 60s and 70s, and, and, at least the late sixties it was all about um, acid lsd and and marijuana, but by the seventies that had changed the cocaine and mDA the love drugs you know hmm. yeah, and I think in the
1: seventies th- th- there was still a lot of a lot of sex and and drugs, but there seemed to be more of a cynicism to it, hmm. whereas in the sixties it was sort of predicated on um, optimism and hope for the future right. and living in this free society. And the 70s w- seemed to be much more um, uh, debaucherous. It's not quite the right word I'm looking for, but I'm thinking of follow the uh, follow the Roman Empire type stuff, and it just seems like people, it was a dark, horrible time, and people were just partying and celebrating in any way that they could so they didn't have to think about it. Right. It, did, it, did, it didn't have that same note of optimism that the 60s seemed to have. It's so but It all true. came crashing down in, in 69 with, like you say, the the Manson thing and even Altamont with the Rolling Stones Mm. and and just all kinds of things
0: it's interesting that it had a great effect on the Academy though and we're going to keep coming back to this because we're trying to figure out why it was that the 70s seemed to represent the best um, filmmaking at the Academy you know since they started so that's 83 years of history and one decade stands out you know you can always find great movies in every decade But for some reason, the 70s, they really seemed to change the way they voted. And, you know, was it a cultural thing? Was it these are the kind of movies they were making? Was it the critics who were whose eyes were open to new artists? And um, was it the 60s coming out of the 60s? You know, what was it about the 70s that that seemed to deliver the best filmmakers and the best Academy choices? It's it's not something that we can answer very easily, but nice to be able to go through these years
2: um on TCM tonight um just before we started the podcast there was a movie that was made in 1965 or 66 called The Great Race what an what a piece of fluffy garbage that was (laughs) My God, (laughs) Natalie Wood and and Jack Lemmon and and Peter Falk and Tony Curtis and it's it's Really pretty to look at. It's all these old-fashioned antique cars. They have a race around the world, you know. But what a piece of absolute garbage. It's like it's like around the world in 80 days, only less classy. Less classy. You know? <laughs> no, classy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, or
1: slightly, slightly more classy than Cannonball Run. <laughs> yeah.
2: So they were made, They were blowing all – it must have been hugely expensive to make. You can tell the production values and everything are just through the roof. It must have been incredibly expensive. And maybe it was successful, maybe not, but it was just – it was – you could just tell that it was uh, just dumb, dumb, dumbed down type of movie. And maybe the, and there were so many movies like that. Like I mentioned before, the, the Rock Huts and Doris Day type movies and the, the the big bloated historical epics that were real stagey sort of historical things. Like even though I do respect a lot Beckett and The Man for All Seasons and Land and Winter, they were, they were like something you'd see on a Broadway stage. They weren't yeah. realistic depictions of what history was really all about. And the musicals of the time, Hello, Dolly and Funny Girl. I mean, I can't watch those things.
0: You know, my question for you guys is, do you think that the Academy responded because the movies made money and that showed that the people were responding? Or do you think that they ever felt like this, like last year with the Hurt Locker, that they really had to lead the charge and be the tastemakers? Or were they just responding to okay, Clockwork Orange made a lot of money, French Connection made a lot of money, um, Last Picture Show was you know uh, really big with the critics. I'm just wondering. Yeah, I think if- I think it was
1: a it was a it was it began with the movies, and I think it was a a weird confluence of time where the big studios were making mainstream films. That had a European '60s sensibility to them, mm. and th- those those were the big movies. They were marketed as the big movies, and that those are the movies that made money, and they were really the mainstream movies, even though the the style was outside of what we would normally think of as the mainstream. So the Academy, I don't think, really had much of a choice. They had to gravitate towards what was popular, and, mm. and that was that that was those movies.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Sure. What you say about the fact that the main the studios were trying to sort of emulate what the Europeans were doing? Because I I do know that Polly Platt, who was Peter Bogdanovich's wife, that yeah. Sasha mentioned earlier, they were going through, you know, actually their marriage was breaking up at the time because he started having the affair with Sybil Shepherd. She told him that she wanted to make an American movie, like the French would make it. She wanted to make a movie about Texas that the French would make. That was her idea. That's the, where the and that style was the last thing. picture show. That was the last well, and, picture show, right,
1: yeah. <clears throat> William Friedkin, I was just listening to the DVD commentary, and he was talking about his influences uh, for the French Connection. And the two movies mm-hmm. that he mentioned were Godard's Breathless mm-hmm. and um, um, Z, which is the movie that won for Foreign Language last week that we were talking about. Yeah. Um, and it had this documentary realism to it that was pretty uncommon for American movies at the time it was all location shooting no sets and um now we take that kind of thing for granted but back then that was that was a pretty big breath of fresh air for a mainstream hollywood picture
0: right
2: right yeah think of the shock i mean we look at these movies now we've seen so many movies since then we see we've seen Marie, a lot of us we of course we grew up seeing the more recent movies that we that are, are contemporary movies that, that were made the years that we were growing up, and then we go back and look at the older movies, and it's hard to imagine the shock that they must have instilled in people when these things came out, to see the kinds of things they were showing in A Clockwork Orange and Midnight Cowboy that had never been shown on screen before, never, mm-hmm. ever been shown on screen before, what how it must have just blown people away, and I think that the studios were, in, not just the studios, but the all of the people in the industry were thinking the industry needs some help. We are – the 60s are not going well for us. The 50s was a pretty great decade, you know. The 40s and 50s both were pretty great decades as far as quality. They must have known that the 60s were paled in comparison. And they needed some, an injection of some fresh, fresh ideas and fresh blood. And Luckily, they had all these filmmakers coming along like Coppola, Bogdanovich, and Scorsese who provided that fresh blood.
0: Hmm. Right. And, I mean, it's just amazing to me that, that we had Coppola Scorsese. I mean, what what other decade have we had those kind of filmmakers emerging from? I mean, I, I guess you could say, like, the John Ford era. You know, you had John Ford and then, you know, Frank Capra and, and Leo McCary and those kind of guys were sort of Ilya Kazan. You know, these are the, the directing geniuses. But really, the future of film was, was happening in the 70s. I mean, this, this is really how, when everything changed and when... You know, directors came that that really did influence generations to follow. They're still influencing directors now, mm-hmm. these guys from the 70s, you know.
2: We look at 69 and 70 and 71, and it's really a launch pad for what was about to happen then two or three years later when this decade really hit its peak in 1972, 73, 74, because you, you have French Connection directed by Friedkin. Then two years later, he does The Exorcist, Right. You have a patent written by Coppola, and then two years later he does *The Godfather* and *Godfather Two. You have um, a little movie called *The Hospital* that Patty Chasesky wrote, that was sort of a, a, a just a it was a farce. It was a farce about um, the way the hospital system and the medical system was was failing patients. And then two years later he did *Network*. He wrote *Network*, and all, all everybody was was gaining getting the foothold and getting the clout to make the movies that they were going to be making two or three years later that were just going to absolutely be some of the best movies ever made. Mm. And why Some of the
1: best and most popular at the same time.
2: And what, Craig? I'm sorry, I didn't didn't hear that. Some of
1: the best and the most popular at the same time. That's That's right, uh...
2: absolutely. And, you know, that's pretty impressive, too, that the audiences were, were pretty smart to... Pick up on these movies, you know, maybe were they a lot smarter than the audiences today? I don't know. It seems like that they were turned up for the quality movies more than they do nowadays
0: uh, yeah, I don't know i mean i I haven't traced film criticism um I just know that. There was a difference between the old, like the Bosley Crowther at New York Times uh, and Pauline Kael and people like that. I mean, there was a difference, a shift in how they looked at movies. And I think a lot of it had to do with the French and the Cahiers du Cinema and Mm -hmm. kind of looking at films in a different way. The birth of the auteur and, you know, there really was an evolution. But what's interesting to me is how it kind of stopped in the 80s. (laughs)
2: You know, I hate to say it because I don't want to put any blame on these movies because I do love these movies a lot, and I I respect the directors who made them, but things really changed when they started making movies like Jaws and Star Wars. And and when they saw the kind of money, even though The Godfather was popular, and we're talking about The French Connection was popular because it made $26 million that year, Mm -hmm. and it was great that it made that much money, but then when a movie like Jaws and Close Encounters and Star Wars those kinds of movies start coming along in the 80s, making $100 million, $200 million, that changed everything. Yeah, I maybe. think it was Nicholson who said, once McDonald's takes hold, you lose your taste for real food. Mm.
1: Well, and I think behind the scenes, the, Hollywood was increasingly becoming corporatized, whereas you had the studio system that lasted up to the 60s. The 70s was kind of this in-between era where all these interesting things were happening. By the time the 80s rolled around, it was pretty much investment banks in charge of all of these these movie studios. And I right. think the product um, reflects that. They're making they're making commodities. They're not making art anymore.
0: Mm, that's so interesting. It's true.
2: There were a lot of great foreign films in 71 too. I'm looking down the list here. My favorite, probably one I keep saying that it, it, it's probably my first or second or third favorite movie of all time, it just depends on how recently I've seen it. The Conformist by Bernardo Bertolucci mm-hmm. was 1971. So influential when you look at that movie and then you compare it side by side with The Godfather, the look of The Godfather and The Godfather 2. In fact, Coppola quotes shots from The Conformist and The Godfather 2 because he has an homage to the influence that it had on him. Hmm. That sort of recreation of an era, I can look at The Conformist, and to me, it, it seems so saturated with the 1930s. It's not like the 1930s that was recreated for movies like Funny Girl, where it looks – like a Disney version of the 1930s. It looks like the real 30s, and that's what The Godfather did too, in the same way that The uh, Last Picture Show looked like it was genuinely shot in 1951. It really had the look of a movie that was made in 1951 yeah. with 1970s sensibilities. That's, and that was that's something what that throws you.
0: Me. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's what throws you off about The Last Picture Show, because you really do think you're watching a movie out of that time period. But no, it's the 70s, so you have to, like, you know – Think about that because you you do feel the pulse beat of that era when you're watching the film, you know, but you but it's also a period piece. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a strange combination of things going on there, you know.
2: Ognovitch is great that you mentioned that about, about the uh, Altura theories and and the uh, influence of the Caillou de cinema and everything because that's really Ognovitch was like the American version of Francois Truffaut, mm-hmm. except and he he like idolized Orson Welles, of course, and John right. Ford, and Howard Hawks. And he wanted to emulate them. He wanted to make movies like they made. And he did it. He did it with Last Picture Show. He made a movie like John Ford would make. Hmm. And except with tits and beaver shots. (laughs) So bravo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Inverted nipples, lest we forget. (laughs) Um, I wanted to say really quickly, the films that were not nominated, according to this book, were Dirty Harry, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Carnal Knowledge. Now, Somehow I think that's a huge crime that carnal knowledge was left out. Uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday The Go-Between I don't know if you guys Have ever seen Do you know Joseph Losey I, That filmmaker I
2: know The Go-Between I love that movie so much That won the best picture at, I mean it won The Golden Palm At Cannes, at Cannes that year right? Oh it's such a good at one It Cannes Film Festival That year I love that movie Joseph Losey And uh, Harold Pinter Wrote that right
0: Oh it's just beautiful What a beautiful film that is They don't It doesn't get much better Than that yeah, Stra- That
2: reminds me of uh, The movies of uh, Lucino Visc- Visconti And mm. uh, Visconti Had another movie Out that year Death in Venice Yeah
0: that's another one one that's omitted so straw dogs play misty for me death in venice the boyfriend bananas harold and maude and the wild rovers so of of those i would say that that um and maybe at a different time a different place dirty harry might have been nominated carnal knowledge maybe sunday bloody sunday mm-hmm.
1: i would add Macbeth, roman polanski's version of the shakespeare play which oh. not surprisingly is one of the bloodiest and darkest of 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 shakespearean movie adaptations
2: it's a really great film though right did he oh, made a exactly. year after the uh, sharon tate murder right yeah, did, or did, yeah is that it, right that he made it, it was it really it wow a,
1: roughly and it's interesting that you mentioned dirty harry i was thinking about that as i was watching um um french connection there two two movies centered on Two sort of rogue anti-hero cops mm. um and i love both of them but i think they made the right choice with french connection i think dirty harry um french connection is very dark and edgy and very kinetic whereas dirty harry is more it's almost cartoonish it sort of relies um almost entirely on clune eastwood's personality it's a very cool movie but it's not a very deep movie i think um I think they're both sort of responses to, I think, a certain paranoia that was happening in yeah. the, the country at the time, sort of a law and order feeling. I mean, if you think of New York at that period um, being mostly a cesspool, and a lot of the big cities were, I think people, I think crime was was really among people's top concerns, and both movies sort of address that, but they both approach it in completely different ways. I think um, French Connection is a little more honest about it, and I think it has... Even though they're both incredibly entertaining, I love them both. I think, I think in its own way, French
2: Connection holds up a bit better.
0: Hmm, interesting.
2: It is about what you say about the crime situation. That's one of the reasons why I think that Kubrick and his wife and his, took why he took his family to the UK because the, he he was a New Yorker, you know, he loved New York, sensibility and everything. But he was terrified of living in New York because of the violence. He didn't want to raise his kids there, and so he moved to the UK. Of course, he went to the UK to make. Lolita and to make strange love. And that's where he realized that he loved the way that the film crews worked there. And he loved the atmosphere there. And he set himself up in this uh, vast estate with acres and acres of land around him. That was like his little protective enclave. And he hardly ever left it. He hardly yeah. ever left that house.
0: He never did, didn't he? He was kind of a recluse.
2: It was. Yeah. And it was, it was to get away from the violence. And uh, so that was a big aspect, Another aspect of what was going on in the country at the time. We it's hard to imagine now the way that New York has been sanitized, that it was such a dangerous place to walk the streets back then.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I like what you said there about Dirty Harry and um, French Connection being like rogue cops taking care of business. I wonder how much of that was brought out of the, kind of reminds me of now with the Tea Partiers who are sort of reacting to this chaos that they think is raining down after having elected a black president. You know, it's sort of, the 70s were kind of similar. And unfortunately, Obama is kind of being carterized you know, in, in a similar way that, uh, yeah, he is. you know, and it's the seventies yeah. all over again. It's a depressed economy. It's a president that people keep saying, I wish he would do this. I wish he, I wish he would be Ronald Reagan basically is what they seem to want, you know, I, fake cowboy, you know, pulling out his guns. But, but I, I, you know, the, this idea of the rogue cop, it kind of reminds me of this year's the town, you know, where you have this bank robber being the hero sort of this vigilante justice kind of thing happening, you know, which you can expect if, if the people are sort of looking at their government as not being trustworthy or the law enforcement is not being very trustworthy and that justice won't get done somehow. Um,
2: and Nolan explores the same things in the, in the uh, dark Knight movies. I, I think uh, people, um, well, I mean, it's not every, I mean, I'm not alone in thinking that I, I regard them as more as a, cop thrillers than i do superhero movies yeah the, the batman movies the batman movies yeah the dark knight and, uh, and batman begins and, yeah um, i would agree with that i trying to, i was just trying to think of other examples besides the town where, where other filmmakers are exploring that now
0: yeah i mean i, I the only thing i feel is you know similar to this particular year 1971 which is I mean, you've got to figure these are some great films, great films that have stood the test of time. And I mean, I don't know about The French Connection. I haven't watched it in a while, but I, I take your word for it, Craig, that it might be a little, you know, a little weak for... Last Picture Show probably should have won in 1971. There was no way it was going to win because it's just not a popular enough film. Um,
1: if I were the guy in charge, I would have nominated McCabe and Mrs. Miller and given that the Oscar. But yeah, I think um, <laughs> of the ones that were nominated, um, I probably would go with... Um, a clockwork orange
0: a clockwork w- orange yeah wouldn't that have been an interesting academy to have picked that for the best film of the year it
1: mm-hmm.
2: would have but like you said never going to happen because you know, know a movie like that can get nominated because there are going to be that that segment of the academy that that recognizes how grandbra- groundbreaking it is but it's also going to scare an equal number of members of the academy and they're they're not going to vote on the final final ballot for that, it can mm-hmm. get nominated. But movies like that, it's what we've been talking about this week about, are are there some movies that are just too out there for the Oscars, right? To to, to win Best Picture, and I think that it would have been one of those movies that's too out there, too weird. But I
0: love. I think.
1: Oh, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say I think the people who didn't nominate uh, A Clockwork Orange probably nominated Nicholas and Alexander instead. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> well, that's right. Go ahead and sit that's... on Nicholas and Alexander. But I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: even I don't Well, know... <laughs> nothing against the movie, but it's definitely the more or, classic I, I, conservative I think, choice yeah, stylistically. Yeah. And interestingly, it, it was not nominated for Best Director. Schlesinger got that spot for Sunday Bloody Sunday instead. Mm-hmm. All the other four films also received directing nominations. Nicholas and so that Alexander. One, that, one, that one kind of sticks out a little bit. Yeah,
0: it sure is. does. Nicholas and
2: Alexander is the King's Speech of 1970. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm gonna be so Without attacked wearing that you know it's a, this is totally off the subject but kind of not off the subject i always thought of clockwork orange and 2001 a space odyssey is happening in the same at the same time in movie space you know what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. while I do, all this yeah. stuff is happening up in space there's this chaos and disorder and this weird antiseptic gang violence on earth i don't know why but stylistically they just both really strike a, the same chord with me
2: well, i think they are linked I think so another thing too is that uh you know for three years in a row kubrick made movies that took place in the near future strange love and then in 2001 space odyssey and then clockwork orange take place in a future that we recognize as that could be happening any minute now you know it could be right, right. around the corner for us and in a way, they're all science fiction movies. All three of them are right. science fiction movies, and um, I do the same thing though. I, I, I time tie movies together. I was thinking about if we if we have time later on, if we're still going to do talk about some of our, of our favorite movies this year. Um, I think a movie that's been neglected and overlooked, and we'll maybe hopefully find a an audience later on, on DVD is um, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You know. Because, and I, I try this, it's strange, it's going to sound weird, but I sort of see Scott Pilgrim as, as Mark Zuckerberg, if Mark Zuckerberg had taken a wrong turn, like if he had overslept mm. the Davis SATs or something. <laughs> 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 you know? yeah. Because they were remind me of each other in some way, you know, it was like a different alternative universe, Mark Zucker- Bizarro world, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> Scott Pilgrim.
0: That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, I don't. Know, they're
2: kind I of like the, the, nebbish, the nebbish, one. nerd kind of guy, you know, who, but still pretty do pretty well for themselves in the end.
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> I hope we talk about Scott Pilgrim again in the future. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. Is it
0: oh, really? I, I got to have yeah.
1: to
2: see
0: that so that I can keep up with you guys. Oh, you I never do. Did it's, see it, visually
2: yeah. and narratively and structurally, it's probably the most interesting movie of the year. I think. Wow. And I, I say that without seeing Black Swan yet. I know that's going to be magnificent looking and visually and the cinematography and everything. But as far as inventiveness and sheer fun of movie making, and capturing the spirit of comic books, Scott Pilgrim is nailed And it. video games. And video, video games, games, too. Right. Yeah,
1: right. It has a certain young boy appeal to it, but I think it transcends that because if you really think about it thematically, it's all about a typical narcissistic... Twenty something boy, but he sort of learns to overcome that. That's the whole idea. He's becoming a man rather than an older narcissistic video game playing douchebag.
2: Hmm. Well, I'm one of these so, people that was kind of getting a little bit tired of Michael Cera being in all these movies time after time. Like he doesn't make anything except these movies over and over, and sometimes right. two or three of them a year. And I was ready for him to like, please go away and don't come back until you're 45. <laughs> right. you high school teenager. Really seriously, <laughs> don't come back, until, just, don't, don't first come first back until
1: you have a pot belly and a crack habit. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> and but this movie made me forgive him entirely. This is the movie that he. This is the movie that redeems everything that he's done since Juno. You know, for me, Wow.
1: That's the best. High. It's the best thing he's done since Arrested Development.
2: Oh, absolutely! He's he's perfect in the role. He just absolutely embodies. the Scott program so well. I really like. This that movie. is high and praise.
1: It's, it, it's a variation on his his usual thing. He's still kind of got that awkward guy thing going, but there's a darker edge to him than he than he's had. He showed it a little bit in uh, Youth and Revolt, which wasn't a very good movie, but his alter ego, uh, Francois Dillinger, was actually really funny. <laughs> right. This total, total suave, together, anti-Michael Sarah character. But um, the, a little bit of that character seemed to
2: inform his Scott Pilgrim character a little bit.
0: Mm, it's so interesting.
2: And it's a funny movie too, really funny Scott program. It just- is plus um, Karen Culkin is so much better than Macaulay Culkin as an actor. He's so much more entertaining to watch and so much um, less self conscious, I think, or something. I just really like him. Plus, you know, I, I guess it's part of my duty in these podcasts every week is to talk about the the gay parts of movies. And he's like the coolest <laughs> gay character in any movie this year. Really, he's oh. absolutely the coolest gay guy you know in any movie this year.
0: Funny. that's he's, been really,
2: he's really the only well-adjusted movie, and the really only well-adjusted character in Scott Pilgrim. He's the normal
0: character. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Everything I've read about it made it sound terrible, but you guys have made it sound like uh, something I'd like to see. I understand the bad
2: reviews that I got. I think a lot of people went into it, maybe with the same feeling that I had, because I only recently caught up to it. I skipped it when it was in theaters. But uh, I think maybe people just were tired of Michael Cera. But they were be. It, it got cool. a lot
1: of decent reviews. I think it was in the seventies at least on on um, Metacritic. I'm not sure about that. I'd have to go and look.
2: Mm.
1: But the audiences sort of um, didn't really give a shit about it. But at the same time, it, it made like forty six million dollars. I think, which for that movie is actually pretty good. Unfortunately, it cost like sixty not to count uh-huh. marketing and all that stuff. It was just a yeah. movie that cost more than what the niche that it probably appeals to could support, I think. So it's, uh-huh. it's perceived as a, as a big financial bomb, but you know, I don't think it really did that bad. And I think it'll, I think it will find an even bigger audience on DVD.
2: Hmm. I think it's the kind of movie that's going to look really good on the resume of the director whose name, kind of escapes me means just a minute. he's Edgar Wright, Edgar Wright. Um, He's going to look really great on his resume looking back as one of his early great movies when he, because I think he's going to be doing some great things later on Edgar Wright is. The same way I think that uh, Kick-Ass was underrated too. I really enjoyed Kick-Ass, and they're sort of the same type of movie, and Matthew Vaughn is an incredible director. Those are, the, those are the two summer popcorn movies that I really enjoyed this year, Scott Pilgrim and Kick-Ass.
1: I can't get behind John Kick-Ass, but I totally support you on Scott Pilgrim.
2: All right, we'll talk about we won't talk about Kick Ass then. I don't wanna, I do argue about
0: it since we don't we don't really have time to talk about our favorite movies of the year. I don't think, but I, I just wanted to put in since you guys talked about Scott Pilgrim, I just want to put out a little bit of a props for uh, Barney's version, which isn't a perfect movie, and it's you know a movie probably a lot of people aren't going to see, and it's kind of a mess in a lot of ways, but it's really worth seeing for Paul Giamatti's performance um that's really the only reason to watch it but he's because he's so watchable and he's so likable maybe other people don't see him that way but to me I'll pretty much see him in anything right. cuz i love i think he's a great actor and he's just so funny and interesting to watch but um and you know when i interviewed him recently he told me that his favorite role was in the illusionist of all things like you'd mm-hmm. think it would have been sideways wow. or you know john adams or something but it wasn't it was the illusionist isn't that funny.
1: Did he elaborate at all?
0: He just said that he'd always wanted to pl- to be a, a magician in his life. Mm. You know that he wanted he'd always wanted that as a kid, and that he had the most fun playing that mm-hmm. part, which I thought thought was really interesting because I wouldn't have pegged that as being his his best role or you know. But um, anyway, I think that Barney's version, despite the fact that it has zero buzz at all. And, you know, it's a long shot for getting any nominations. It's worth worth checking out. So I I would recommend that film for people to see.
2: That can kind of be the theme of this segment. And it's not we didn't really maybe cover all of our favorite movies of the year, which I can't do at this point because I haven't seen everything, Mm -hmm. as many things as you guys have seen. So I'll have to save my very favorite movies of the year until later on in the month. But this yeah. was a good opportunity to go back and pick up on some movies that maybe fell through the cracks.
0: Okay, well, I think that does it for another edition of Three-Way Moviegasm. And I think that we'll be seeing you next week, if all goes well. Thanks for listening. You can find more on awardsdaily.com or livingincinema.com. You can also find us on Twitter at awardsdaily. At Living in Cinema and at Ziggy Starfucker. I know
2: that we are young and I know that you may love me, but I just can't be with you like this anymore. Alejandro. <laughs>